You're listening to Pastor Jesse Miller of City Lights Church. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 6. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Morah, at the time the Canaanites were in the land. We are in this series, this is week two of a series uh, about promises that God has made with us. Um, in middle school, I've talked about this teacher a lot. Uh, one of my, my favorite teacher that I ever had, his name was Mr. Mish, and he had like these little catchphrases that he would say a little bit too often, like, you ever have that teacher where he says the same jokes every day? You're like, okay, we get it. But Mr. Mish, one of his little liners that he would say was, promises like pie crust are easily broken. Has anybody ever heard that before? Okay, so two of us. I guess Mr. Mish made it up. And, no, I'm kidding. No. So like, I heard that, and it's always stuck with me. Uh, he'd usually say it when one of the kids in the class would say, oh, I'll get my homework to you tomorrow, or something like that. He'd be like, yeah, Mark, promises like pie crust are easily broken. So it was like one of those things like, I don't really believe what you say you're going to do. And so it was kind of like this constant joke, and like that's stuck in my mind, and it's still like whenever I hear somebody make a promise, like that naturally just pops up, promises like pie crust, you know, it's, which is ridiculous. Anyway, promises like pie crust, so, so often we will make promises to each other, and some, very often, we fail to keep our promises. And in the series that we're talking about, we're looking at how God has made promises with us, with his people, and there's account after account of these promises or these covenants that God has made with his people that he always keeps. And there are different types of promises there's, or, or covenants. There's conditional covenants where you do this, then I will do that. And then there's the unconditional covenants. I will do this regardless of what you do. And that's what we're really looking at these last few weeks is these unconditional promises that God has guaranteed to keep, has kept, and will keep. Make sense? So that's what we're looking at. Last week we talked about Noah and how through when we see the rainbow, we should think of God's unconditional promise to never pour out his wrath on the earth. He will not flood the earth again. Instead, his wrath was pointed toward heaven and not toward humanity. And we talked last week how Christ absorbed the wrath of God against sin and brokenness so that God's war bow was not pointed at me. I could, you and I can walk around on earth in Christ and realize God's not wrathful and ready to destroy me. He loves me. And so when I see that, I see the promise that I don't have to fear him in, in like a, like God's going to hurt me kind of way, but I fear him in the awe sort of sense. I love the Lord. I, I fear the Lord in that sort of sense and not like, I'm not afraid of him destroying me. We good? We all caught up? So that's last week. This week we're looking at another covenant that God made with his people. And what does that mean to us? What do these covenants mean to you and I here in the year 2016? What does it mean? So we are looking at the story of Abraham. 
Abraham is the father of our faith. He's, the, he's Abraham, right? Not a whole lot of Abrahams nowadays. That's a, that's a good, solid name, Abraham. So Abraham, and I want to briefly, there's a lot that I could cover. I was talking with a few people this week that I think like part of me really wants to take like the seven weeks and talk about Abraham, but I don't think that's what God wants for this season right now. There's so much that happens in the life of Abraham, but I want to just kind of paint a timeline for you real quickly, and then we'll really get into the heart of today's, today's discussion. So Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, God looks at Abraham and he promises him something. He promises him a family. He gives him a call. He says, I'm calling you to this. I'm going to bless your seed. I'm going to bless your line. The problem at that time is Abraham doesn't have any kids. He has no seed. He has no lineage. He has no people. He's just Abraham with a bunch of other, his dad and his cousins or his nephew around him. He's got no offspring of his own. So God says, here's your call, Abraham. I'm blessing the earth through you. I will bless all the earth through you, right? So that's, that's the call, the promise, right? This little, this little call, this little promise that prompts something in his heart, and he's obedient. He walks in obedience. He starts to go somewhere else. Then we see Abraham and his wife. Here's, God gives him a promise, and then they go to Egypt, right? Abraham and his wife, Sarai at that time. Both of them get their names changed from Abraham. So if I say Abraham, think Abram as well. It's the same person, just God changed his name. Sarai, Sarah, same thing. We good on that? So uh, you'll be like, where is this Sarah? I don't see this yet. Uh, it's the same person. So Abraham and Sarah go to Egypt, and somehow, for some reason, Abraham is afraid of Pharaoh and of the kings there. He's like, he's going to see my beautiful wife and want her. And so I got a good solution for this so they don't kill me or destroy me. I'm going to pretend she's my sister, and I'll let him have her, or take her wherever, and do whatever with her, and that way I'll get rich, and I won't die. Abraham gets a promise from God about his offspring, his lineage, you will bless the earth through, through your seed, with your wife, you will bless the earth, I'm in Egypt, and I'm terrified of Pharaoh, uh, yeah, Pharaoh, this is my sister, go hang out for a little bit. What? That's insane, right? So that's the next thing that happens. So he, he, he lets, and then Pharaoh finds out, like, why did you do this? Like, this is wrong, like the whole thing. And so the next scene that we see, really, is Abraham's nephew Lot is captured by these multiple kings, and, like, they take their, their family. Abraham goes with his clan, the, the servants that he has, no offspring, just a lot of servants and a lot of wealth, and he goes after these other kings who have, who have taken his nephew, and he rescues his nephew, kills all these other guys, takes their plunder, and, take, and it ties in with Sodom at that time. The king of Sodom is happy because Abraham has now returned all this stuff, delivered them from these other kings and so the king of Sodom's like here let me just take this part you can have this Abraham and Abraham says no I don't want your riches because God's going to bless me not your dirty money basically is what he says then he takes money and he gives this this tithe this portion first time we really see this tithing to this high priest that we don't really know a whole lot about named Melchizedek and he gives this money this tithing so he trusts God with his money so here's here's where we are so far there's a call there's a promise then there's fear and pretty broken sin, right? And then rescue. Abraham's this rescuer where he defeats his, this, these kings and rescues his family. And he tithes and he trusts God and he doesn't take money from wicked kings. So we see this kind of like good moment, bad moment, good moment, right? See it? The next thing we see is God says, 
Okay, Genesis chapter 15, here's my covenant with you. This is where we see God confirm the call and the promise, and now he says, I'm covenanting with you. And a covenant in that time was there was a real seal of brokenness, and they would do something. God says, go ahead and get all these animals, right, and line them up in the trench because there had to be shedding of blood for a covenant here. God's basically, basically, let me give you the picture. I'm trying to wrap this up. Whenever they, they would take an animal, they would split it in half. They would do this down the trench. They would walk through the blood of the animals together, hand in hand. And when they did this, what they were saying is, if either one of us break our covenant, let us be like these animals who are cut open and bloody and dead. Make sense? So God says, hey, prepare for the covenant. We're going to make a covenant together. What I told you before I'm going to do, now I'm making a covenant with you. So this is after his obedience, God saying, I'm making a covenant with you. God does this, though. Abraham gets all these animals together, lines them all up, and then there's this weird verse about Abraham, these, these birds of prey are trying to like, come and get these animals that are laying in the trench, and Abraham's chasing these birds around. Like This is literally the picture. Abraham's running around chasing birds, like shooing them away for a while, and all of a sudden the sun starts to set, and God says, okay, Abraham, go to sleep. It says, deep, deep sleep. And it says, darkness fell upon him. All of a sudden, Abraham was shooing birds. God's about to do something crazy and incredible, make a promise. And he puts Abraham to sleep, and he walks through the animals himself. God says to Abraham in that moment, you cannot handle this covenant. You won't be able to keep your side of this, but I will. So you go, and basically, when we see this verb sleep, we see it in two places, really. We see it with Adam when he falls into a deep sleep and the ribs taken out and God gives him a wife. And then we also see this word sleep, deep, deep sleep, when somebody's dead. So God basically kills Abraham, in a sense, and says, I'm making a promise that you can't even begin to participate in. I'm, you are obedient to me, for, and I'm doing something for you that you can't even help with. So go to sleep, die, and when you come back, you can live in promise. That's what God's saying to Abraham. It's, it's an incredible story. So he wakes up, and God's already gone through the fire. or He's, he's like this torch that goes through the, the valley of these animals and makes this covenant, promises him. And then the next thing we see is Sarah, um, Abraham's wife, looks at Abraham and says, look, you don't have any kids yet, and I'm not doing it. Here's my Egyptian servant named Hagar. Why don't you take her as a wife, sleep with her, and then you can have children. And then, then what God said could be true. And this is completely not God's design. And Abraham listens to Sarah, takes her as his wife, a, wife, a wife, and she bears a son, Ishmael. There's a call and a promise, then there's disobedience, then there's obedience, and then there's a covenant, and then the next thing they do is they question the covenant that God's already said twice to them, and they do something that they see in the flesh and the natural. Make sense? I want you to see this. She, as Abraham's wife, is seeing that they're old, they're getting, they're aged, and they're not youthful anymore, and she's not having kids yet. When, let me say this just so you understand. When that first in Genesis 12, when God gives him a call, this is before covenant, but when there's a promise and a call, Abraham is 75 years old and has no kids. That's a hard one to believe. If I'm 75 and you tell me I'm going to have a, a child soon, I'm not going to believe you, just being honest. 
It hasn't happened yet, probably not happened when I'm 75. And he, bought, he believes this promise, and then years later, there comes doubt again. After God has confirmed his covenant in this crazy way, there's this doubt that slips into their heart. And Sarah sees in the physical and disbelieves what God has promised in the spiritual. So often in our lives, God gives us these promises, these words over us, these stirrings, these callings in our heart, and then we begin to see in the physical. And so we question what God's promised in the spiritual, and we try to come up with a physical solution to what he's promised in the spiritual. That's what she did there. Here's a solution. Here's a, here's a better plan. Maybe we didn't quite understand this, so let me give you her to be a wife. That way you can still have God's promise. And so she gives Abraham, and he listens, and she, uh, um, Hagar has a child, and then immediately Sarah is angry. She's like, what have you done? Like, typical, right? <laughs> she is angry all of a sudden. She's just really mad. It's broken. And she, she's like, get her out of here. I can't see her. I can't stand her face. She's got contempt against me. I don't like her. Like, this complete cat fight right there at the beginning. Just this full-on rivalry, an idea that she had, right? There's brokenness. Let me say this. There are consequences for the things that we do in the flesh when we should have been walking by the Spirit. There always is going to be. It's always going to bring division when God gives us something, a vision in the Spirit, and we do what's in the flesh, what makes sense to us, but He's not leading us to. That ha- I mean, I can tell you from personal example, there's been plenty of times where I felt God call me to something, and I tried to make it happen on my own, and not the way that He's designed. It always leads to consequence. Always. So there's this brokenness. And then God, after this, does something else. I'm, just get, I'm trying to give you the timeline here, so hope, I hope you can follow me. So after this, God says, let me give you a sign, Abraham, of my covenant. Your people, all your servants, you will all live. Your son Ishmael will live with the sign of the covenant that I promised to you. You need to go and get circumcised. Didn't really know what circumcision was. I don't think I have to explain it. I hope not. But Abraham doesn't have the lineage yet, the right son yet. He doesn't have the promised son yet. And God says, go ahead and do that to that (laughs) and to all your family. And the funny thing I was thinking about this morning is God knocked him out for the covenant he made, but he didn't knock him out for this. If I was Abraham and be like, God, can can I get another dose of what you gave me back when you like, did that, we can, do, we can do that again. It'll be a lot easier. He didn't do that. So his family, he has all the servants, all the males, 13 years old. Now Ishmael's 13 years old when he's circumcised. Abraham is 99 years old, I believe. Yeah, he's an old man doing some stuff. Making, doing circumcision at that age. And his son, 13 years old, who's not the promised one, who's kind of rejected by Sarah. He's like, Dad, you want me to do what? <laughs> uh, uh, no. But the whole family, all the servants, they listen because there's a promise. And they're, try, they're, they're walking in obedience. There's a sign of the covenant. So there's this, like, I want you to see this picture. There's this moment of, like, calling. There's this moment of miserable failure where he basically gives his wife away to it. To a to a king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, 
And then there's this moment of triumph and obedience and rescue. And then there's this moment of covenant. And then there's this moment of sin and brokenness. And then there's another sign of the covenant where God's saying, I'm still going to do what I told you I would do. I'll still do it. Abraham is 99 years old. Ishmael is 13 years old. The next thing we see is Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah. The story where this city is wicked and God wants to rescue Lot and he leads Lot out with angels and the city's destroyed. It's not a happy picture that we see. And then when Abraham is 100 years old, finally Sarah conceives and she gives birth to Isaac. There's 25 years here between the first call and the actual delivery of the promised son. There's, a, there's this, in his heart, God has spoken, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless the entire world through your offspring. And then it's 25 years till that even begins to be a part of the picture. Till that one son is even born. Track it with me? There's a long period of time. God has promised covenant family. God says, I'm giving you a family. I'm giving you a people that you, that's going to bless the earth. There's this covenant nation that I'm going to produce through you. There's a family that's promised to him regardless of his performance. Abraham did not do a lot of good things, but he was obedient. He trusted God. And then there were these moments where he just didn't. Does that sound familiar? Abraham was saved by his faith. God looks at a lifestyle of obedience, not perfect people. His lifestyle, his overall heart was, God, I want to be obedient to you. He was faithful. He trusted God, but he wasn't perfect. Abraham was not a perfect father of our faith, but he was the chosen, called, set aside father of our faith who trusted God's promise. I want to look at our own lives for a second here, and then I want to go a little somewhere else then. But how, how often, here, here's what I think our lives typically look like. There is this time frame in our lives where we're searching for that, that meaning. Like, God, what do you have for me? What are you calling me to? You guys know what I'm talking about? Where you're just like searching for your purpose. It could be high school. It could be middle, middle age for some of us. We, we, you might go through it a few different times in your life. Who knows? But there's a season sometimes in our lives where, like, God, what did you design for me? I mean, I, I was a youth pastor. And so I remember, like, half the altar calls at, in youth group when I was a teenager and whenever I had teenagers in my youth group. The kids would come up to me and, like, Pastor Jesse, I just need to know my purpose and destiny. I just need to know what God's calling me to. And then two weeks later... I need to know what God's calling me to. A year later, they're about to graduate. I need to know what God's calling me to. I've said this before. I feel like the primary purpose in every one of our lives that we should hang on to is that we are called and and purposed and destined to know God, to rejoice in God, and to glorify God, whatever that looks like. I can't tell if that's through helping out some women's home or evangelizing on the streets or going to Africa or if it's through work and construction and, and telling everybody you know about Jesus. I can't tell you that. But there are seasons in our lives where we know we are created for more and we don't know what it is yet. I remember, and I've shared this story before, Ashley and I first got married. I knew I was called to ministry. I knew I was supposed to be a pastor. But I was working night shift in a factory, pushing around a big dumpster, 
full, they were picking up people's uh, cardboard boxes. For, I mean, we're in the middle of the city, not a, not a safe street that we lived on. Not this city, another city. This city is always safe everywhere you go. Um, kidding. Um, but like, I'm like, this is, after the first few months, I'm like, okay, God, this is not exactly ministry. This kind of stinks. Uh, my, my wife is at home sleeping, and I am here pushing cardboard. Um, I know I was supposed to do something else. This is not what's for me. And so I'm pushing and pushing, and I'm praying. And finally, after about nine months, I'm like, God, seriously, I will do this forever if you tell me this is what I'm supposed to do. If I'm only supposed to witness to the people in this building, then I will do this forever but I know you told me long ago that I was supposed to be a pastor in churches. I don't know what that looks like or when that's going to happen. Please do it now. I'm like, do something more. <laughs> and like the next week, I got a phone call about helping out a job that helps people. And I'm like, this is something that God is hearing my call and he's putting me in another place, right? I, I was, instead of pushing, picking up cardboard, I was counseling people and getting paid to do it. Not good, but I was getting paid to do it. Not in a church, in another job. But anyway, like there's, this, there's a season where we're just like, we feel like we're just pushing cardboard like, God, I know that there's something. For 75 years, Abraham was just Abram with no call, no destiny, just a father and, so, and a nephew, just doing whatever, li- trying to listen to the voice of God. And then all of a sudden this call comes. This call comes and God speaks. Before that speaking, sometimes we're, our lives are just full of this longing and despair. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Where you're like, God, what do you want from me? I can resonate with that. Abraham can resonate with that. Like, God, what do you want from me? And then when he gives us a promise, we go from this excitement and this zeal. Okay, God, you spoke. I know what I'm supposed to do. And then we go and we try to do it on our own. And it looks awful, right? And then we start to wonder, like, God, uh, where are you in this? I thought you promised me this. I thought you said that I was called to this job or to this career or to to this whatever. I thought this is what I was made for. God, any day now you can do something. Any any day now you could show up and actually do what you said you would do. Or then maybe you go to maybe I just misheard. Maybe I didn't maybe that prophetic word or that stirring in my heart was wrong. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe God didn't speak. Maybe God you've been silent. Maybe, God, you don't speak. I've been there. I remember that with this church plant. We heard a clear call and had a prophetic word to move this grant and to help start a church. And then our first year, I remember in tears saying, God, where are you? What are you doing? This is awful. (laughs) Just being honest. Like, I remember those seasons. And when God gives us a promise, you will probably most likely go through a season where you wonder, God, where are you with your promise? Where are you with my purpose, my destiny, my, this thing that I was made for? When, when are you going to put me there? When are you going to make this happen around me? And so we, then we start to wonder. Sometimes we just come to a point where we just tell God off. We just yell at him, right? Like we think we know better than God. We start yelling at him like as if he's stupid and he doesn't listen and he's bad. Like, like God, you're evil. Why would you do this? Like we, that happens. Or then we, maybe some people just stop believing in God. I've heard that story multiple times where I felt this and it didn't happen this way, or this person died, or that job fell through, or this thing happened. So I don't believe in a God who would do that. Make sense? I don't believe in him. Let me say this. Moses, when he was in this this part of his life, was between 75 and 99 years old. That's a long life by our standards, correct? 
And here, what we have to realize is even Moses at his old age was an infant compared to the eternal, all-knowing creator of the universe. I, um, what's, a, what's 100 years compared to eternity? What's 100 years of your knowledge compared to God's eternal knowledge? Recently, this, is, this happens more times than I can really count, but my daughters, they're five and six, soon she's going to be seven. She clearly let Martin know that yesterday. She told him, and he asked, like, when? And she's like, I already told you April I'll be seven. Like, she was angry at him. But, like, they, they think they know a lot at five and going to be seven. They, they know everything, right? And um, I can't tell you how many times my girls would come home from school, and one of their friends has told them something, you know, whether it's about where Santa Claus lives or where leprechauns come from. That's a new one. It's, you know, St. Patrick's Day. Uh, there's leprechaun glitter all over the school. That's great. Um, or, you know, where do babies come from? These are all the things that they come out of school because their friend, Sally, literally they have a friend named Sally. I'm not making it up. Because Sally told them this. This is where babies come from. And I'm like, no, it's not. Which is dumb for me to say because then that leads to more conversation. Or, you know, what leprechauns, or the elf on the shelf, or, or why is the sky this, or how do cars work. There's literally every, like one time I got on a full, full-on argument with my six-year-old, and I said, Haley, don't say it again because I know it's not true. It is not how it is. I'm telling you, that is wrong. She's walking up the stairs, and I hear her whisper to Faith, Daddy doesn't know anything. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> Like, that literally has happened multiple times. My kids try to argue with me about the silliest things, and they're five and six. It's the same thing when you and I do that with God. When we don't get the promise the way we want to, or when we want to, or when we think we know how God should run the universe. God, that's not fair. God, that's not right. Where are you, God? That's like my four-year-old thinking she knows everything, and I'm 31 saying, you don't even have a clue yet. You don't even have a clue. Everyone from the atheist like Stephen Hawkins to the most arrogant Bible scholar is still an infant in knowledge compared to the one who created truth, the one who holds all knowledge, the one who crafted the edges of the universe, the one who existed before the hands of time even started ticking. Who are we, the created and the infantile, to look at at God, our creator and the eternal, and say this isn't fair? Or have you forgotten? Or I won't believe in a God like him. That's a common one. I can't believe in a God who does this. Who are you to say that? Who am I to say that? Who am I, the creator, to say to the creator, why did you make me this way? Or why aren't you doing the things I want you to do? If God's promised something, God keeps his promises. And he knows better than I do. We have to, in those moments of frustration and those moments of confusion, say to ourselves, I'm but an infant compared to his eternal knowledge and wisdom. I don't know anything yet. And I'm saying this to myself. This is not against you. This is a me thing. I daily have to say, I don't have a clue what you are doing. I don't know what you're doing. I know your heart loves me and you reveal portions of your plan to me because I'm not a servant. I'm a son. That's what 
We see in the, in the New Testament that he lets us hear his heart. He reveals his heart to us so I can trust him, know he's good. He's not a bad master. He's a loving father who keeps his promises. There is, um, there are these moments where we, we feel the stirring in our hearts and we just have to be silent and listen and wait. I don't want us as a church and I don't want me to have these dreams and have these stirrings in our hearts and these promises of God and then we go and we find a Hagar and then it leads to destruction and fighting and confusion. Let's not do that. Let's, let's, let's trust that if he says I'm going to do something, let's let him lead us by the Spirit and not be led by the flesh. I do, I mean, man, there are so many different classes on how to build a church, right? And a lot of them are very good log- logical ways to do it. Problem is, it doesn't always work that way. What works for a church in South Carolina, it doesn't work for a church in Scranton. Like you, can, you can go the logical route, but ultimately it's God who builds his church, Right? And I would say the same thing with, with your, whatever God's called you to, whatever God's put in your heart. You can do the A, B, C list of like reasons and things to make your dream work, right? But ultimately, if the Holy Spirit's not leading you, you can, do, you can invest in all the right places and still be wrong. I mean, we joked about this before. Like every church planning book you ever read will say you need a minimum budget of like $50,000 and, and like one, two full-time staff right? That's like what you will read, church planning 101. We had $5,000 and nobody full-time. Jared was working construction. I'm working in a group home. That's not a way to plan a church and under no denominational covering. So it's like, yeah, way to wing it, guys. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit said, do this. So we just did it. Like Jared and I talked before about wanting to write a boat, uh, a book, not a boat, wanting to write a book called Get Out of the Boat. Because I feel like so many people are just like in the boat rowing, like, okay, I got to get to the right place before I can get out of the boat. Sometimes you just says, get out of the boat. Just like, Peter, get out of the boat and walk. Stop. Don't worry about your age. Don't worry about your credentials. Don't worry about anything. There are, I joked before, there are people in this room who have way, way, way better theological degrees than I do. I can't sit around and like, well, go ahead. <laughs> You're smarter than me. It's true. You probably are smarter than me. It's, it's true. But God told me to do this, so I have to do that. And it's the same thing for you. If God gave you a promise and God gave you a word, just do it. Get out of your boat. But if he said wait and don't try to make it happen in the flesh, then you better sit still for a while. You better wait till he tells you to get out of the boat. Don't jump out there thinking, well, maybe it's time, and then you're floating around. <laughs> just, just listen. Listen. Our first year, it felt like we were sinking. But God, we, we, we hung on to a word. We hung on to a promise. It was tough. And I was infantile in my mind thinking, God, where are you? Have you forgotten? God has not forgotten you. He never will. How can the God who holds all knowledge ever forget? He doesn't. I hope that encourages somebody. <laughs> Hebrews 11, chapter 8, says this, or Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. I gave you two different chapters at the same time. I'll just read this quick. This is Hebrews 11. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place where he, was, where he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. Living, I'll stop there. 
it said, we see in the New Testament that it was his faith, Abraham was, his faith was credited to him as righteousness. And that verse tells us Abraham by faith had to get out, take a promise, God gave him a promise, and he had to go to a land not even knowing where he was going. Some of us have to trust in God's promise and to begin to make those blind steps saying, God, you're leading me this way and I don't know where I'm at. I have never been to this land before. That might be a career opportunity. It might be a conversation. I don't know what it is that God stirred in your heart. He put a dream in you to see a change, to see some life, and you might have to take those obedient blind steps like Abraham did to a land of promise. Make sense? Okay, we'll move on to the next thing. So back to covenant. What does covenant mean for us? What is this? Abraham, so Noah had a covenant with God that he wouldn't pour out his wrath on, on humanity again. The Abrahamic covenant is I'm going to bless the earth through you. I'm going to make you a people. I'm going to make you a family. I'm going to make you a nation. What does that mean for you and I? Because most of us are probably not Jewish, right? You might be. That's fine. But most of us are not Jewish. We're not from the lineage of Abraham. So what does that mean for you and I? What does this promise mean for us? Matthew chapter 1, the beginning of the New Testament, the beginning of the Gospels about Jesus Christ. Verse 1 says this, going into verse 2, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father, father of Isaac, and then it goes on from there. Abraham is the father that led to the genealogy that led to the birth of Christ. And Christ is the firstborn among us. We have been grafted in, we see, in Romans 11. It tells us that the Gentiles now are grafted in to that family of Abraham because of Christ. We've been brought in as his chosen people. Actually, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people called for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This promise that was given to Abraham that I'm going to bless the earth through your line. He's talking not just about the Jewish nation, but he's talking about Christ himself, the ultimate fulfillment of blessing all nations. Of the whole world is blessed through Christ. And now because of Christ, we are grafted in to that family. You and I get to look at this covenant with Abraham and say, we are part of the family that blesses the entire world. We are a family called to be loving of one another and to preach the gospel, to preach blessing, to let the whole earth see his glory. That is the family that you and I are given regardless of our performance ability, regardless of our status, regardless of how much we have. We are given that promise because God said to Abraham, I'm going to make a people for my own. I'm going to make a family and the whole world would be blessed. Jesus says, this is like probably one of my favorite passages in all scripture in Matthew 16 when they're in the worst possible place at Caesarea Philippi the heart of paganism Jesus says I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it Jesus has promised God has promised my family my church will be built will always exist it will never stop you and I get to hang on to this promise that we will always have a family He's the God that calls out to the orphans, the marginalized, the widowed, the oppressed, the sick, the lame. He says, here, come be a part of this family and see how I can bless the world through you. 
This is the promise that you and I get to hold for ourselves this morning. We have a family for us. The family of God. We are a chosen people. We're a holy nation because of the cross. The fulfillment of God's family has come through Jesus Christ and will never stop. We are to be a blessing to the nations. God has promised us. God has promised. He's given a covenant of an eternal family, of an eternal people, that we are blessed and honored to be grafted into God, to be made God's chosen people. We're his church. Even if the world, let me say this, in complete times of uncertainty, in, in times of chaos politically or globally, God has always built his church. The church of God will always exist. The word of God will never be destroyed. In the times of persecution, the church often has grown dramatically. And it's only because God is faithful and he keeps his promises. We, we can live in a nation where we, we're like, well, we're, nobody's being beheaded for the gospel. Nobody's being physically persecuted. But a lot of us, like, mentally feel like, oh, we're persecuted because of our faith. We can't say this. Everything's, you know, politically correct. And we can't do this. We can't do that. I would say this. Like, regardless of if you feel persecuted or not, God's church will be built. That's good news. You will always have the family of God. Regardless if you feel oppressed or beaten down, the family of God will always grow. My question is, are you a part of that family? Are you tied into that family? Are you advancing the gospel? Are you blessing the nations? Are we blessing this city? That's, that's the primary reason that we're doing this thing where we're trying to get food and we're trying to help that, that lady's home. It's not because we want to be just a people of good works, but we want the gospel to make the city rejoice. We want to bless people. I'm tired of churches that do nothing for their city. I'm tired for holy huddles of people praying together and then they don't do anything at work. (laughs) They don't tell anybody about Jesus. We are called to bless the nations. That's a promise for us. We can either live in that promise or we can try to do the Hagar thing and try to make promises happen in our own way. Make sense? This morning, as we go into worship, uh, let me encourage you that, that the church is supposed to be a family. We, we say this all the time. We are a family. It was said during, an, during the announcements this morning. We want to be a family. That's why we have our home groups. That's why we have uh, our Celebrate Recovery. That's why we have all these things. Last night, I was so excited. We, we had, did our, our second annual volunteers banquet. So I guess it's annual now because it's two years in a row. And we had, we were going through like who volunteers, who helps in some capacity here at the church. And we had about 50 people on that list. There's 78 of us here today, you know. There's, we're family, but we're all helping and tying into this. This is not my church or my wife's church. This is not Martin or Kevin or Ben or Kenny's church. This is our church. We're a family together. You can tie in. I encourage you, tie in in some way. Build relationships. Let it feel more like family. Because this should not feel like a social gathering. This should feel like the family of God advancing the kingdom, fulfilling the promise that was said thousands and thousands of years ago. That through Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And I am blessed. 
because of what Christ has done, because of the seed of Abraham, the seed of God. I am blessed because of his grace, and I'm blessed because we are all grafted into that body. And across the world, there are millions and millions and millions of believers worshiping him today. That's exciting news. You are not alone in this thing. There's a promise of family that's eternal. Make sense? This morning, I just simply want to ask you a few things, and we're going to do some worship. If you want prayer, the elders will be up front, the elders and our wives, um, Hannah, who leads our prayer ministry, uh, the guys from the discipleship house. We want to be up front, available. We're going to be worshiping too, but come interrupt us as we're worshiping if you want to pray about something. But let me ask a few questions, and maybe we can pray with you for them. Where are you redefining God's purposes because you feel frustrated? You're in that 25 years that Abraham was between the first calling and the actual seeing of holding his son. Maybe you feel like you're in that place where you're trying to redefine what God actually meant. And so I want to encourage you, come, come, let us pray with you. Let us ask God for wisdom on that. Second thing is maybe you're in a place where you think you know better than God. You think that God's not doing things right or fair time and so if you want prayer or if you just need to think about that in your own heart doesn't either way i challenge you this morning where where are you thinking that you know better than god your lifespan is nothing compared to his eternal knowledge and then finally i I just want to encourage you where where are you are you living as the family are you living as a blessing to the nations